0: used in that way. We, we, know, we think about the Dark Ages, we think about this time where we know very little about history. Uh, there was very little writing uh, at this time. For a thousand years, Europe made, made little progress in terms of their culture. Um, art was stiff and plastic. A lot of superstition in their art. Uh, wars were frequent during this time. The day of the city was gone and its place was the day of the, the castle and it's a feudal king and his peasants. Well, today in our study of the Scriptures, we're coming to the dark ages of the Bible. We're coming to the book of Judges. As most all of you know, we're in a, a sermon series just surveying the 12 stages in the Bible, which I have highlighted for you right up there on the screen. Major historical eras identified in the Bible. My, my aim in these messages is really to, to give you a An overview of the Scriptures so that when you're in a part, you can see the whole about where you're going. And it does a little help when you're traveling along the the landscape, um, trying to get to a destination. If you forget your destination or you get messed up in the city streets, you always need to know where the the story is headed and and where it is going. And these 12 stages present for us uh, a good outline. I've pulled them from this book called 30 Days to Understanding the Bible from Max Anders. And I just want want to pound these into you. Uh, creation, Patriarchs, Exodus, Conquest, Judges, Kingdom, Exile, Return, Silence, Gospel, Church, and Missions. And so we've sung a little song. All right, let's right, let's sing it again. Here we go. Twelve stages in the Bible, let's learn them one by one. Come on, Dylan. Creation, Patriarchs, Exodus, Conquest. Judges, kingdom, exile, return, silence, gospel, church, and missions. Alright, so it's going to be like a month before we sing that again, but I'm sure you'll, you'll pick it up. We have looked so far at the creation... The 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 act of God creating the world, the fall of man, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. We've looked at that. We've looked then at the at the patriarchs. The creation was the creation of the world. The patriarchs really the creation of his people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and, and Joseph then led on into the Exodus. As Joseph died, the people. Um, In Egypt, where they were didn't know, Joseph began to subject them to slavery and then they exited out of the promised land. Last week, we looked at the conquest, that is the book of Judges, coming in to conquer the land. And we left that in in Joshua chapter 24 with Israel um, having mostly completed their job, though we'll see not not quite yet. Uh, The story of Judges picks right up where Joshua ends. Joshua... Died, we don't exactly know, 1380 BC, maybe something like that. If you remember, the Exodus is 1400 BC. Abraham, 2000 BC, Exodus, 1400 BC, so Joshua died a little bit after that. The time of the judges span about 300 years until the time of, of Samuel, just before 1000 BC, before the time of the king, Saul. Or David is at is 1000 BC. So it's, a, it's about 300 years, and it really forms a bridge between the conquest and the kingdoms which come, which we'll look at in a few weeks. The book of Judges is, without question, the strangest book in all the Bible. Joshua twi- dies twice in the book. It's kind of strange. Dying twice. In fact, he'd already died in Joshua, so is the guy who dies three times in the Bible. The heroes in this book are, are weak men Samson, perhaps the, the greatest hero of the book of Judges, is, has a propensity and a weakness for women. Gideon, who was the one perhaps who has filled with most faith and did some great things, was fearful and cowardly and was timid. And in one case our hero was even a woman who led Israel in battle. The events that took place in the book of the Judges... Just plain bizarre. All right? I don't know what other word to use it. Just bizarre. In chapter 1, the story is told of uh, Adoni Bezek. He's a king. And when he was captured, they tortured him by cutting off his thumbs and his big toes. You see what? Well, they cut off his thumbs and big toes? What a strange thing. Well, he had done that to 70 other kings. And so they just returned the favor on him. It's like, whatever. On two occasions, his book mentions left-handed people. I know my son's going, "Yes!" Here, cheer for the lefties. But nowhere else in the Bible do they talk about left-handed people. It's because lefties are so strange, right? Right, sir? Bizarre. Gideon tested the Lord by, by saying, "Direct the dew in the morning, with the fleece; let it be wet or let it be dry." Shamgar struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. You know that thing that you kind of you slap a, an ox to so keep, keep him going. 600 Philistines he, he killed with a stick with a bronze tip at the end of it. But Samson killed a lion barehanded. Killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. You know this, this big club, I guess he used it. A thousand Samson, this is a funny story, he, he tied two foxes together, put a torch on the back of them, and then say, run. And they're scurrying about and arguing, and, and they go and they, they light a field and burn the crops of the Philistines. Micah, here, here's Israel, right? Micah places a shrine in his home and buys a Levite to be his own personal priest. Now that is bizarre, especially in light of everything that we know of the Old Testament. We know of the law Later this priest was captured by the tribe of Dan and they said what's good for a person is good for us a tribe. He'll be our priest for our tribe. One of the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, was almost eliminated in civil war. They were down to 600 people, 600 men. And do you remember how I get their wives? They said, okay guys, you go over there and you you hide in the bushes over there and uh, the women from Jabesh Gilead are going to come out and dance. And as you spy them out there, then you come out and you attack them. And like a caveman, you know, you, you club them and take their hair and just kind of walk away. Grab them. Claim them for yourself. It's bizarre. It's really strange. So they pounced on these women and took them away. And in this book, God seemingly acts in a very strange way as well. He kept saving these, these people who were sinful time and time and time and time again. On one occasion, Gideon had an army of 30,000 men and he reduced it to 300 based upon the way that they drank from the brook. Said, hey guys, come over here. Why don't you drink from the brook? And if they drank from the brook lapping like this, that was one thing. But if they got down and drank from the war like that, that was another. He said, well, we'll take those who did that. I forget which one was right. right 300 did it this way or 300 got down on all fours to drink from the tribe. But that's how he diminished the war. And then when they went out to make war, I guess is isn't so weird, it's like Jericho, um, these 300 men went out, surrounded the city in hundreds, pods of hundreds, and, and banged, banged pots and broke pitchers and blew trumpets and then just created confusion and then routed Midian. That's what God wanted to do so the glory would come to Himself. Or think about this, think about how God acted with, with the secret of Samson's strength. Any of you children know what the secret of Samson's strength was? Do you remember? Yes, Colin, do you remember? What was the secret of his strength? His hair, right? His hair was long, he's strong. And when his hair was chopped off, he was weak. What? And God was the one empowering. When his hair was long, God was with him. When his hair was short, he was not. That's how God acted in this book. I think one of the strangest, maybe most amazing thing is what, what God did is, is how He rescued Israel out of their out of their troubles again and again and again and again and again. A common fairy tale that's told in our day is about the, uh, the boy who cried wolf. And kids, I'm sure you know this, but the story is told about the it's a fairy tale about the boy who's on the outskirts of a city and he's shepherding his sheep and he cries wolf, wolf, and everyone, the whole city comes out. Hey, he's crying wolf and they're out there and he says, ha, 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 ha. I made you come. Um, you know, so they went back, and again, he said, hey, I, I'm going to try this thing again. He's out shepherding sheep, not a problem. He says, wolf, wolf. And they all come running, and he's laughing and laughing. Ah, oh, I made you come. There's no wolf. And then when there was a wolf, he cried, wolf, wolf. And what did the people in the city do? They stayed, and the wolf had a nice lunch of little boy. And what that shows is that people will give up on others, and we think about the people of Israel who, who time after time after time after time would sin and then call out to the Lord. God God never got to be like the city and gave up on Israel. God came out again and again and again and again and again. And in some sense you might say, well, it's kind of foolish of God. Doesn't He know what's going to happen? Yes, He knows it's going to happen, but it's to show the surpassing measure of His grace and kindness toward the people of God. That's what He does. To show His grace. To show His kindness. there, There are two themes that run through the book of Judges. Israel sins and God saves. Israel sins and God saves. Israel sins and God saves. And it goes again and again, as simple as I can make it. Israel sins and God saves. The sins of Israel are much and they are strange. You know, from time to time you hear you hear um, news about some strange crime happening. You know? And I know I'm particularly intrigued by like, how could someone do that? And it seems like every week, there's some other bizarre crime that comes up that people say, what, what was that? You know, Someone hid away, or a particular way that someone killed, or someone's disappearance, or you know, all these kind of things. Uh, strange, but I think that the crimes in Israel rival any of the strange things we are happening today. There was this king, Eglon, who was a very fat man, and Ehud, the left-handed judge, Sr, he's your hero, he came in and, and stabbed the guy, and he was so fat that his, the fat kind of came up over his arm. And he pulled out his arm, and the sword stayed there, and his bowels come running out. So, you know, the, the instrument of murder was right there on the victim. No searching. Maybe they couldn't find it, because it was enveloped in all his fat. It's like, strange. Strange. A jail, So, a woman, took a hammer and a, and a tent peg and, and Sisera was, was hiding and, and he was uh, down, exhausted, and she put this tent peg like this and clank, 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 clank right through his temple into the ground and shish him into the ground to kill him. That would make the news today. Someone did that. Abimelech murdered 70 of his brothers. I mean, that is, that is mass genocide. Seventy! it's a lot of people. That would make the news. Jephthah sacrificed his daughter because of an oath he made. That would make the news. Child sacrifice. Man kills daughter because of a vow made to the Lord. How about this one? Judges 19, it tells about how a man's concubine cut up into twelve pieces, limb by limb, sent throughout all the territory of Israel. Right? So FedEx comes knocking at your door with a package. And you open it up and say, Oh, what's this? Oh, a bloody woman's leg. Twelve of these parcels were sent out throughout all of Israel. I mean, these, that would make the news. Bizarre, strange crimes. Judges is a, is a strange book The last verse of Judges says it very well. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so they murdered. They deceived. They married multiple wives. They were adulterous. They betrayed their family. They were seduced. And I'm just talking about the leaders. I'm just talking about the judges did this. And as the leaders go, so go the people. It was not a bright time for Israel in these days. And so I hope you realize also that just with... uh, well, the, the, the strange, bizarre sin that takes place in the book of the Judges. It, don't take the things in Judges and say, oh, since he did it, we should do it. It is just strange to me that Gideon put out a fleece to kind of test the Lord. And people are like, oh, Gideon did it. I can put out a fleece. Like, don't you know? He put out a fleece in the book of Judges. Don't imitate Judges. God says... Don't put the Lord your God to the test, which is exactly what Gideon was doing. God was gracious. Or a lot of evangelical feminists looked at Deborah. Deborah becomes this, this model woman. She's great. And, and, and you know, as I read about Deborah this week in Judges 4 and 5, I, mean, I think she's a virtuous woman. I, you know what? I think that she is a model and an example, but I think it's wrong entirely to say, hey, look, Deborah, she judged the people of Israel. She led. It's okay to have leaders in the church today. And I'm like, You pull your example from Judges? Do you know what else happened in Judges? It's not the place to pull your examples. You look at Judges and say, wow, there's some really screwed up people. But God was gracious to them. Israel sinned and God saved. Israel sinned and God saved. And that's the message of the book of Judges. It's a dark time. It's a low point in Israel's history. Whereas Joshua is filled with conquest and progress and success, Judges is filled with defeat defeat and decline and failure. In fact, that's what the first chapter is about. Won't you've not done so already, open your Bibles to the book of Judges. I <clears> want <throat> to show you how the first chapter is all about their failures. Um, we're going to skip a lot of stuff as we obviously can and must. Um, but Judges chapter 1, verse 19 kind of starts this flow says, now the Lord was with Judah and they took possession of the hill country. Well and good. That's a, that's a good thing that they did. But they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. So they did not drive them out. They could not. And verse 20 says, they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had promised and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. And some of this is also told in, in Joshua as well, but that's what took place. Uh, verse 21, but the sons of Benjamin, so we've seen Judah fail, didn't drive everyone out. Verse 21, but the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Didn't drive them out. Verse 28, and we're going to start. We're going to see tribe after tribe after tribe. It came about when Israel became strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. More of a summary. Ephraim, verse 29, did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Verse 30, Zebulun, another tribe of Israel, did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nehalal, so the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Acho or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Akzeb or of Helba or of Afik or of Rehob, wherever these places were. He did not drive them out. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of land. 4, verse 32, they did not drive them out. Naphtali, same report. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Bethanath, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of land, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, and Bethanath became forced labor for them. And this was contrary to the commands of God. God told them, wipe them out. Destroy them completely. It's the message of Joshua. And they failed. So right from the start of Judges, we see it starting off as failure. And um, it goes downhill from there. Judges is not a a bright book. It failed to take the land. And beginning in chapter 2, we see God addressing a situation. The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. More about that later. And he said, I brought you up out of Egypt. (laughs) Think about this. I brought you up out of Egypt. That was the Exodus. I'm the powerful God that did that. And led you to the land which I swore to your fathers. There's the patriarchs tying together the patriarchs, the Exodus, the conquest. And as for you, you shall make. I'm sorry. Uh, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And that phrase there is the reason why God saves, and why God saves, and why God saves, because He will never break their covenant. His covenant with them. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed Me. What is this you have done? It was clear what they were to do, and they didn't do it. And he just, God is asking us now, what is it that you have done? Therefore, God says, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will become a snare to you. And that's why when we read in chapter 1 about all the the people, they didn't drive out, they didn't drive them out, but rather they stayed, rather they stayed, rather they stayed, they become then a snare to Israel and Israel was living right next to the idolatrous people there in the land. Verse 4, When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and rightly so. Sorrowful for missed opportunities. They had opportunities and they failed. Therefore, they named the place Bokim because that word, to weep, they lift up their voices and wept. They baka. And Bokim is the Hebrew word for just weeping is what it means. And they sacrificed to the Lord. These people understood their failures. It's not that they were deluded right from the start. They, they saw their sin. They saw their defeat. They saw their failure. That's what judge is about. It's, about. it's about sin. It's about defeat. It's about failure. See, the history of Israel wasn't one of great smashing success. It's not like they, they went and conquered the land and everything is good and fine and dandy after that. No. The Bible is not, doesn't hide anything from us. The Bible shows us man and his sin and who he really is. And judges a story about a sinful and disobedient nation. It's a story of a nation to whom God is faithful to preserve even in the middle of their sin. And it, it goes back, I hope that you saw here in chapter 2, right, verse 1, that it goes back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. He chose this people for Himself and He'd be faithful to them. He's not going to wipe them out for the glory of His name and first, fame. He'll never break his covenant. But as Israel sins, God saves. Israel sinned, but God saved them. You know, and, and I think about here what a great picture this is of the gospel, right? We as sinners need a Savior, and God has given us a Savior in Jesus Christ. And throughout the book, as we read of, of God saving a sinful people, as they cry out to God who's willing and ready to save them. I hope that you see just, just how that even foreshadows and anticipates Jesus. Because these people of Israel, they, just, they got in a desperate situation. They were oppressed and they, just, they cried out to God for help and God was ready and willing to save. And I would say Jesus Christ today is ready and willing to save all who call upon Him. You nearly, merely need to cry out to Him. That's all these people did. And just as God came and helped them, God will come and help you. All of your trials, all your difficulties, all your pain, all your sin, you cry out to Him and He will be your help. It's the message of Judges. Well, I have two points this morning. The first is called this, the cycle of the Judges. And really this this first point is an exposition of chapter 2 because chapter 2 sets up the the paradigm, if you will, through which to see the whole rest of the book. And then we're going to try to zip through all 12 Judges. Some of them would be very fast, but I just want to mention all of them so you see. But the the book of Judges is structured structured around cycles. Structured, structured. Israel was distressed and they cried out to the Lord. So God sent a judge to deliver them. And they were delivered. Sometimes they began to reform their ways. But when the judge died, Israel then neglected the Lord, turned again, followed after their wicked ways, and were just pressed, oppressed again. And then they cried out again. And again, the Lord would ju- send a judge to deliver Israel, and Israel would have some political deliverance, and there would be peace in the land. And, and then after the judge died, they would go back to their old ways. A story about people will you ever learn. And then they'd, you know, plunge into sin again, and see the distress, and then crawl out to the Lord again and again and again. It's a cycle. One commentator described these gave five words to this cycle. There was sin, slavery, supplication, salvation, and silence. All right? That's for those of you who like acronyms. I'm, I'm not into them so much. But sin, slavery, supplication, salvation, silence. People would sin. They'd go into slavery. And they'd make supplication to the Lord. God would bring salvation to them. And there would be a period of silence to test the people, see what would happen. And you know what? They, they'd sinned. And after their sin, they would be in slavery. And then they make supplications to the Lord. God would save them, and then there'd be more silence. And, and it would cycle through again and again and again and again. But these cycles, you got to understand, are not perfect cycles, right? A, a, a perfect cycle would just mean you start here, you go around, and then you come back to right here. Same place you were. But they didn't do that. Because when they, they went around their cycle of you know, sin and then, then slavery and then supplication and salvation, when they came back, they weren't here. Now they were here. They were more sinful than before. and As they went around, they were here. And so you might say these cycles are pretty much more like a, a downward spiral. And the cycles are explained here in chapter 2. And I just want to work through these verses. Beginning verse 11 here. The cycles of the judges. Verse 11, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Here's the sin. This phrase here, The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord... Appears six times throughout the book of Judges and always descriptive of this whole cycle. After they have been saved and there's silent, at the end of the silence, then they sin and they go down. And it really sets up for you the need for a Savior to come and deliver them. And we'll see some of these phrases as we go through the, the Judges, but time after time, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and soon after it follows with God's deliverance as we work our way around this cycle. Then in verses 12 and 13 we see the, the various sins in which people were engaged. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed themselves down to them, and thus they provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served the Baal and the Ashtoreth. Twice in these verses we see the author saying that they forsook the Lord. That means they turned away from Him. They abandoned him. They left him. And they didn't leave him to a vacuum, to nothing. Rather, they left him to serve other gods. In other words, they replaced the Lord with the gods that they wanted to serve. And they served the gods of the Canaanites. Baal and Ashtoreth. Baal is a common name of a Canaanite god. Um, You know, the Canaanites had a pantheon of gods and so it's difficult to know what exactly this Baal is. Sometimes there's a Baal in a specific place like Baal Peor in Numbers 25. Sometimes it's just Baal. But basically, Baal is the the god of um, weather. Sometimes there are statues of Baal with a, a thunderbolt in his hand because he controls the weather. And so controlling the weather means you control the rain and controlling the rain means you control the harvest. And so, Baal was important. And the people of Israel succumbed to worshiping Baal so as to please him so that their harvest would be good rather than trusting the Lord. Ashtaroth is the name of a female deity in Canaan. Most certainly the goddess of fertility. If you've seen, um, if you've seen statues of Ashtaroth, Ashtaroth, um they're like R-rated, if you will. Highlight female sex organs. Um, the worship of Ashtaroth was sexual and immoral. And the people of Israel were engaged in this. I mean, It was the, um, the sinful, immoral pornography of the day. That's what worshiping Ashtaroth was. And, and as Israel forsook the Lord, and as they followed after these other gods, it, it stirred God to anger. He is a jealous God. He said back in the Ten Commandments, The days of Moses, he says that he was a jealous God who was enraged at unfaithfulness. Just as a man is stirred to anger by the unfaithfulness of his wife, so God is stirred to anger by the spiritual unfaithfulness of His people. And Israel knew this, but it didn't stop them from pursuing their spiritual adultery the jealousy of the Lord was provoked. As you can see here in verse 14, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. How could they forsake me? How could they follow another God? And He gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them. And He sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord has spoken, as the Lord has sworn to them, so they were severely distressed. It's The chastening hand of God upon wayward people. See, not only was just God angry with them and let them alone, God was angry with them and He gave them to be plundered. And He gave them into slavery. And it says in verse 15 that the hand of the Lord was against them. See, it's one thing just to be, be left to your sin. I mean, if, if, you, if God just says, okay, I'll, I'll leave you to your sin, then you're out there without any protection and at least maybe you can dodge the bullets that are coming. But if the hand of the Lord is against you, it's like trying to run away from a guided missile. You're not going to run away and you're going to be destroyed because God's hand is upon them. You're not going to escape. God is too big and too powerful to escape. So it means here in verse 15 that the hand of the Lord is against them, that He was actively following them. He didn't just let them go and wander. As they went. He followed with His chastening hand. Sometimes when God deals with us with sin to the point that we get, verse 15, severely distressed. But the good news of the cycle is this, is that after the sin and after the slavery, there is the supplication often comes. And this leads to the salvation. Verse 16, Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Now, here in verse 16, we don't see them crying out. Um... But that is a pattern. They cry out to God, and God then brings the judge to save them and deliver them. At this point, it would be good for us to identify and, and define what a judge is. I've kind of just used that term. I haven't even talked about it. You've probably alluded to it and really thought about it a little bit. But when we think of a judge, we think of a, of a man in a gown behind a desk with a gavel who hears the case of one, hears the case of another, evaluates the law and smashes the gavel down and says, Thus is the judgment. But that's not what we're talking about here, judges. Oh, there may have been some of that, but primarily the judges here were saviors. Th- these are saviors who came. Small ass saviors, but they came. They were military leaders who struck down the enemy. They were rulers who came to, de- to guide the people. They are spiritual deliverers to lead the people back to the Lord to serve Him. And in this sense, I think the book teaches us of Jesus. If anything, the book of Judges teaches us of our sin. It teaches us that we need saving. And Jesus has come into the world to save us from our sin. Galatians 1 4. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from the present evil age. It's Jesus who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And we do what's right in our own eyes, the people in Judges' time did, we'll get in trouble. We need the Lord's guidance. We need the Lord's help. We need the Lord's saving. And so I just exhort you, come to Him. Come to Him. He's your deliverer. Call upon Him and say, I need a deliverer just like the people in the Judges needed, needed, needed Othniel or Ehud or Shamgar or Deborah or Gideon or Tola Jair or Jephthah or Ibzan or Elon or Abdon or Samson to come and deliver them. I need Jesus to come and deliver me. There's salvation no one else. There's no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved. It's Jesus. And so call upon Him. If you're an unbeliever in Christ, call upon Jesus to deliver you. If you're a believer, call upon Him all the time for His help that He'll come and help you with. That's what took place here. When God gave them a deliverer, in verse 16, in verse 17, we see that the cycle continuing. After being delivered by the judge, things would turn worse. Yet they did not listen to their judges. They did not listen to their military deliverers, their saviors. For they played the harlot after their other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord and they did not do as their fathers. Well, there's the pattern. Right? They're delivered and then what happens after their they're saved and they go back in their own ways. They go into sin. And any reform that took place was always short-lived. Because it went right back there. How appropriate it is the hymn writer, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And, and that is the case of the gestures, right? They're prone to wander. They're, for some reason, we are more prone to the Canaanite gods than so the people here were. And for some reason, we are more, more prone to the, the worldly riches or to the lust of our eyes or lust of the flesh than we are to Jesus we're just like these people. And the same story continues in verse 18. And, and the, the cycle here is not just a clear cycle, but it's you're kind of in and again. Verse 18, When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And, and by the way, just keep that in mind. The Lord was with the judge. And we go through the judges, you're going to see that again and again. God was with them. God was with them. God was with them. These judges weren't just... Just heroes of men who rose up. These judges were empowered people by God to deliver his people. The Lord is with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Because, and here's why, God saved again and again and again and again because the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. God moved by compassion, by grace. But it came about, verse 19, when the judge died, that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers. In following other gods to serve them and bow down to them, they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. And you see, verse 19, about the downward spiral, right? They would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers. So every cycle around, they're getting worse. More corruptly, more corruptly, more corruptly, more corruptly. You can easily see in the book of Judges, when you read it, that just the decadence and the immorality and the wickedness just. Just goes down and down and down and down. By the time you're done reading Judges, you should be in, in depression, really, because of the sinfulness of people. But in joy because God is the one that saves. But discouraged because the people of God never turned. But encouraged that God has given us the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Well, the result was tragic. Let's just finish out here the, the chapter, verse 20. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and He said, Because this nation has transgressed My covenant which I commanded their fathers, again you see the patriarchs, and has not listened to My voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nation which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain not driving them out quickly and He did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Joshua. The very thing that God commanded to do, wipe out the nations, was the very thing that God was going to prohibit the people from doing. So bad was their sin. God didn't even permit their obedience any longer. It's like, you know what? You had your chance to drive those people out and you missed your opportunity. I'm not going to give you another opportunity. They're going to live with you. And you remember when we went through Judges 1, right? they they didn't drive them out, but they stayed there and they became a snare. They didn't drive them out, but they stayed there and they lived among the Canaanites and they were right there. and, And that's what the end here of chapter 2 is, is talking about. Rather than giving them victory, God gave them testing with these people. Right? They're, they're going to they're gonna always live right next to the door with the pagan people. You know, someday, some ways it's like that with sin. We continue in sin so long, though God forgives us our sin, there still is that nagging thing there often that can be the temptation, the test for us. It's always there. Chapter 3 begins with a list of the pagan nations who would dwell in the land with them. And they were left there, as verse 4 says, to test Israel, to see if they would obey the Lord. Such is the tragedy of the sin of Israel. But, but notice this. It did not come overnight. It's not like they just failed once. It was again and again and again and again. God was patient in reaching this point. I say this, are you thankful for the patience of God? God's patient with you. He's patient with you. It's the loving kindness of the Lord. It's everlasting. Psalm 136. The loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. That means His patience, His forbearance to us endures. Well, there's the cycle of judges. And now, my second point, the judges. There are 12 of them in this book. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdin, Samson. All right. Confirming four of these judges, we know a lot. We know a lot about Deborah. We know a lot about Gideon. We know a lot about Jephthah. And we know a lot about Samson because whole chapters or two or three or four are committed to these judges. But of eight of these judges, we know hardly anything at all. Just a, a little... A little verse maybe, maybe a couple verses. Um, And so you might even say, you got major judges and minor judges. And I just want to mention all of them, show you what we know about each of them. Uh, They have something to teach us. So let's just zip through them. First judge, Othniel, a story is told in chapter 3, verse 9. When the sons of Israel... Well, let's, let's back up to verse 7. This is a verse I was talking about earlier. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served, surprise, surprise, the Baals and the Asherah, right? the, the God of the weather and the sex goddess. Then the angry Lord was kindled against Israel, so He sold them into the hands of Cushon Rishathaim, King of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan-Rishathaim for eight years. Then, here comes a supplication. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother. Do remember Caleb and Joshua were contemporaries? This is right after the Exodus. There is a closeness in time here. And here again, the Lord was with them, right? Verse 10, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. How did he judge him By becoming a military leader. When he went out to the war, the Lord gave. Cush-Rishtayim, king of Mesopotamia, to his hand. So he prevailed over Cush-Rishtayim. Then the land had rest for 40 years and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. That's all we know about the guy. Right there. But, but here's what we know. Israel was sinned. They cried out to the Lord and God brought Othniel to these people. God's Spirit came upon him. He delivered them and then gave them rest for 40 years. But again, verse 12, it turned sour, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Surprise, surprise. Ehud, second judge, comes in verse 15. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, again, He's mighty to save, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. I just want to make a long story short here. I told the story already a little bit. But this is Ehud, the left-handed man. He hit a sword into his uh, right thigh. He goes into Eglon, this big fat king, you know, Jabba the Hut, And he says, King, I've got a special message for you. And uh, the, uh, the king said, Oh, special message? Everyone out. And so as he got out, he said, Come, tell me a special message. And so Ehud came close and said, Here's a special message for you. <coughs> fat. Boiled over. And then, as soon as he was dying, his bowels were coming out. He escaped through the door of the roof chamber and left, and he was gone for quite a long time, had a head start. That was Ehud. That's his story. It's kind of about all we we know about him. But he, verse 30 says, Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. Does it know that Ehud didn't merely act up on his own strength? It was God who raised up this deliverer. Yes, Ehud delivered Israel, but in fact it was the Lord who raised them up and it was the Lord who delivered Israel from their bondage because God is the one who saves. God's a Savior and there's no one else besides Him. Uh, third judge, Shamgar, verse 31. After him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad and he saved Israel. That's all we know about Shamgar. Some of this, verse 31, we need to read through the lines, but we know that he saved saved Israel and there why he was a judge. Let's go on. Deborah, her story is told in chapters 4 and 5. We can't read her whole account, but I'll give you the skinny of it. Chapter 4, verse 1. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after he who died. Okay. This is amazing. Again, we see Israel crying to the Lord. Verse 3, The sons of Israel cried to the Lord because this king, Sisera, had 900 iron chariots and he opposed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. So for 20 years they were oppressed and finally they called out to the Lord. They cried out to Him. And so God spoke through Deborah, the prophetess, as she's identified there in verse 4, who gave them military orders to go up and defeat Sisera. And I do believe that there was some measure here about um, um, just her submission. And she said to Barak, who was the commander of the army, he said, go, as it says here in verse 6, go and march to Mount Tabor, you and 10,000 men. And Barak said, uh, verse 8, I'll go if you go. But if you won't go, I'm not going. I think he's a coward of a man. And Deborah says, okay, I'll go. You know, So even here, you see her reluctance a little bit, but I believe she was a godly Kindly woman in touch with the Lord, and uh, this is the whole story about Sisera and you know Deborah. uh, A Barak was was going and and I want you to see what Deborah said here and just how much the Lord was with Deborah and the people of Israel, particularly with Barak. Verse 14: Deborah said to Barak, "Arise, for this is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. Who is delivering Sisera?" From the hands of the Israelites. Who is it? It's God who's doing it. Yes, it's through Barak. God is saving, but Barak is the means of that. And then it says in verse 15, The Lord routed Sisera and all his army and all his chariots to the edge of the sword. And then Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. So here you got his army is defeated. you know, And this is Saddam Hussein hiding in his pit. Right? And this is Sisera running off. And Barak then is chasing him. Eventually he... He came to the tent of jail, hid under a rug, and verse 21 speaks about his end where jail Heber's wife, took a tent peg, seized the hammer in her hand, went secretly to him, drove the tent peg into his temple, went through into the ground, for she was sound, he was sound asleep and exhausted, and so he died. And there was God routing Sisera, giving them freedom. Chapter 5 contains a song of victory written, I believe, by both Deborah and Barak. It's called their song... Um, Deborah is talking about how she wrote it, verse 7 until I arose, until I, Deborah, arose, a mother in Israel. And the story of Deborah is the story of all the judges. Israel was sinning, but God was saving. Israel was sinning, but God was saving. Verse 14 and verse 15 speaks about how God was saving. Hope the point's clear. Let's go to Gideon. So we kind of march on. He's the fifth judge. His story is told in chapter 6, 7, and 8. And again, look how the story of Gideon starts. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. (laughs) The Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. Same story. Israel sins, and so God gives them into the hands of others. They need saving, which is what God does. He's in the business of saving In verse 7, when we see the sons of Israel crying out to the Lord on account of Midian, verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel and told them uh, of how they'd been unfaithful to Him. That's verses 8 through 10. By His grace, God still saves them. saves them through a man called Gideon, who is introduced in verse 11. Gideon is a lot like Moses. He's very reluctant. And his reluctance shows that it's God who saves. That's my point. The angel of the Lord, verse 12, appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, a valiant warrior. And then Gideon said to him, Oh Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Why is it that Midian rules over us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers did, told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from the land of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Right? I'm sending you. I will be your strength. Don't go in your own strength. Go in my strength. And he said, verse 15, Oh Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? <laughs> Just like Moses. I'm weak. I can't speak. Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. God said, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midianus one man. And it follows there in verses um, 17 and following. God shows him a sign. And uh, the sign is basically a sign of um, spontaneous combustion. He puts out some um, bread and some meat upon a rock and the angel of the Lord burns it in his sight. He says, oh, okay. But, but Gideon is, is a man who is, who is fearful. He's a man who lacked courage and still God used him. And, and in my study this week, I found a special encouragement in Gideon. Just because he was fearful and timid, and God used him. His spirit was upon him, as it says in verse 34. He was fearful. And in fact, let me show you a few instances where he was fearful. Look at verse 25. God says to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the asherah that's beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold in an orderly manner, and take the second bull and offer a burnt offering of the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. It's like, okay, your father's got this altar to the Asherah. You know, you just, you just dismantle that thing. This altar is probably pretty big. You dismantle that thing, build a proper altar to the Lord, sacrifice a bull on it. So go ahead and do that. And look what Gideon did. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household, right? And the men of the city to do it by day. He did it by night. He did it like incognito at night so nobody would know what was happening. Because he, he, he was a scaredy cat Was Gideon. Well, that went on and, and things went well there and then he called them again to go up and that's the whole sign of the fleece that he gives here at the end of chapter 6. He says, oh God, if you're really with me, I put this fleece out at night and I'm going to go to sleep and make it wet in the morning. And he goes out and there's dew all over. And it's like, oh, well, it was wet. And he wrung out the dew. He says, okay. And he says, okay, well, God, if you're really with me, put the dew out and, and let, let the dew be all over but not on the fleece. <laughs> like, surely I'll be able to get out of this one this time." And he comes back and it's dry and all the grounds wet. Clearly miraculous. And Gideon, you'd think that he would be emboldened, right? But he's got 30,000 men. And the Lord said to Gibeon, chapter 7, verse 2, The people who are with you are too many for me to give you into their hands. For Israel become boastful, saying, My power has delivered me. And so he reduced it down to 300 men by the way they drank water. <laughs> and then, then look, look, at, look, at, look at his fear here in verse 9. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down to the camp. For I have given it into your hands. Almost like the same language he used Joshua, right? Be strong and courageous because I am with you. Be strong and courageous because I have given you the land. But if you're afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp. And you'll hear what they say. And afterwards, your hand will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. And here it is. So he went out with Pura. And to go out with Pura means he was scared his servant down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. He was a fearful man. But God used him to defeat the Midianites, only 300, so it would be clear that it was God who was delivering and not this man. And the summary comes in chapter 8, verse 28. make a long story short, So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel. They did not lift up their heads anymore, and the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gibeon. God saved Israel through Gideon. God is a saving God. The next judge comes in chapter ten. We're hitting number six, so we're going to start flying. This is Tola. Now, just a little bit. Some people say Abimelech, a judge, chapter nine. There's debate about that. So some have thirteen judges, not twelve judges. That's okay. We're gonna we're gonna skip him because it never says he was a judge like it says the others. But he may be. It's it's hard. It doesn't really matter. Verse. 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 1. Now after Abimelech died, Tola the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, okay, Grandpa Dodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel and he lived in Shamir, <coughs> in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years and he died and buried in Shemir. Okay? That's all we know about Tola. He was a judge. Saved Israel. It's the purpose. God brought him. Next judge, Jair. We're flying now. Verse 3. After him, Jair the Gileadite rose and judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havot-Jair to this day, and Jair died and was buried in Camon. That's Jair. Um, And then before we get to our 8th judge, or some call it the ninth judge, there's kind of this this reprieve, again, recycling through about the the, the sin of Israel. Verse 6, The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served other Baals in the Ashtoreth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. It sounds like chapter 2. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He stood and He sold them into the hands of the Philistines, into the hands of the sons of Ammon. And again, same old, same old. Verse 10. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, the Philistines? Also when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you've chosen. See if they'll save you. Let them deliver you in time of distress. But the sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And so God in His grace serve them, save them. They put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. So he brought up another judge, Jephthah. Alright, are you with me? Okay, let's keep going. Let's get through Jephthah. Jephthah 11. But again, in chapter 10, it's kind of a reprieve. Just a cycle again of sin and even at this point you see God saying, it's no use. You can turn away again. Say, please, God, help us. And he says, okay. Jephthah. Now, he was called a valiant warrior in verse 1. He fought against Ammon, who was a depress, oppressing Israel at the time. The source of strength wasn't himself. Okay? It was someone else. It was the Lord. Verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And that's the key to all these judges, that God was with these judges. The Spirit of the Lord came upon them. It was the Lord. But Jephthah made a tragic mistake in verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, such an offering sounds fine. He's dealing with God, okay? This is the book of Judges. Don't make promises like this, right? Don't make vows like this because, verse 34 says, When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter Coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. And so she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You're among those who trouble me, for I can't, I've given my word to the Lord and I cannot take it back. God, will, whatever comes out of my house first, I will sacrifice to you, right? He was hoping this goat was going to come out and see him. But his daughter did. There's discussion, the commentators, theologians, did Jephthah really sacrifice his daughter? And I think in light of the strangeness of the context of Judges, I think it's best to say he sure did. He sacrificed his daughter. His tragic mistake was he kept his vow that he never should have made. It's better to break your vow than to do a wrong thing. Because he compounded his error. That's the book of Judges. Strange events. All right, the end of chapter 12. Three more judges Ibzon, Elon, and Abdon. Real fast. Now, Ibzon of Bethlehem judged Israel after him. And he had 30 sons and 30 daughters, whom he gave in marriage outside the family. And he brought in 30 daughters from outside of his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzon died and was buried in Bethlehem. Not very remarkable. Elon, verse 11. now Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel after him, and he judged Israel ten years. And then Elon the Zebulonite died; and was buried at Ajalon, in the land of Zebulun. That's all we know about him. Though you know, I think if we knew more about these men, it could be that they are like the Samsons and the Gideons and the Deborahs, you know, elaborating more upon their life and more than they do. Everyone has an interesting history; it's just we don't know about them. God has hidden that from us, which is okay. Uh, we're talking Judge number eleven. Now Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathanite, judged Israel after him. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. Now, by the way, all these sons and all these daughters we see, what's it showing? These people are involved in polygamy, alright? It's, kind of it's, it's got to be an assumption unless you've got some mighty women there. 40 sons, 30 grandsons, rode on 70 donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. And then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the... Rathhanite died, and he was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Malchit. That's all we know about him. And now we come to last and most famous of the judges, Samson, and for the sake of time, I think I'll just zip through the, the story of Samson. But his story covers four chapters: 13, 14, 15 and 16. It starts off like everyone else does. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years then the story tells about how um, God came to uh, this family, Manoah and his wife, told about this child to be born, told them, verse 7, conceive, give birth to a son, and you shall not drink wine or any strong drink or any unclean thing. The boy should be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. A Nazarite is uh, explained in Numbers chapter 6. He shouldn't have anything from the fruit of the vine, no, no wine, no alcohol, He shouldn't have a razor touch his head, and he shouldn't touch dead people. That's all. That's why Samson's hair was so long, is because he was a Nazarite. Anyway, he was born, verse 24, identified as Samson, grew up, the Lord blessed him, and we see Samson driven by lust. Chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timra, saw a woman in Timra, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. This is right. Baruch Salt. I want what I want and I want it now. That's who Samson was, driven by his lust. Samson got his wife, but she deceived him, verse 16, about this riddle. And then, (laughs) bizarre, um, he killed 30 of these people who had betrayed him and uh, then his wife was given away. It says in verse 20, Samson's wife was given to a companion who had been his friend. He did not like that. So he took vengeance on the Philistines. That's with this fox thing I told you about earlier. But through all of this, chapter 15, verse 14, the, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. <laughs> you know, It just shows also, this might be encouraging, God uses... Unrighteous people to accomplish his purpose. Samson is not the most righteous person, but God used him and he can use us. If he can use Samson, he can use any of us. Sure, Samson was a beast, but he was a sinful beast. He killed a thousand with a jawbone, what it says in verse 15. He was womanizing in chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. And he went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. So he's carousing with the prostitutes there. Then eventually he loves Delilah, some other woman, in verse 4. And then you know the story about how Delilah then deceived her, him. He was on her lap and he was caressing him and just said, what's the secret of your strength? And you know, he, he told a lie a couple of times and just deceived her. And <laughs> she, She's wanting to figure out the strength so he can, she can deliver him into the hands of the Philistines, into the hands of the enemies, right, who she was ally, allied with. And then, talking about manipulation, verse 15. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've deceived me three times. You've not told me where your great strength is. Like, you're a deceiver. That's why I deceive. So you got deception going on back and forth, this whole thing. But eventually then he was deceived by Delilah. Like they cut off his head. He went out to get the Philistines, but verse 21, the, 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 verse 20, the Lord had departed. Right? We see, we see that the, the judge is strong when the God's there, but if the Lord departs, they have no strength. Because these aren't just human saviors. These are divine saviors, human means that God uses to save. And then verse 21, the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, brought him to Gaza, put him in bronze chains, and he was a grinder in the prison. Well, his hair grew back, he regained his strength, and then he pushed down the, uh, the, the pillars of the temple, killed 3,000 Philistines. More in his death died than in his whole life. story of Samson, not a... Not a great life, but a life that God used to help deliver the people from the Philistines. Um, he was certainly strong and mighty. And we're going to stop there because it's the end of the Judges, though we could go into more debauchery here about um, this personal priest and things like that. But I want to take you to one last verse, if you bear with me. Just one last verse Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. Hebrews chapter 11, you might think, okay, what's Hebrews chapter 11 about? What's Hebrews chapter 11 about? Again, I forgot. What is it about? The Hall of Faith is what it's called, right? All these people, right? Starting with with Abel and, and going to Noah and going to Abraham and going to Sarah and then going to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and continuing on there down into Moses and continuing down other people about the Rahab and others. And he gets down here, verse 32, and he says, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. He says of David and Samuel and the prophet. Who are Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah? They're judges. And and I wish... I wish the preacher in Hebrews would have gone ten minutes long like I am today because we would have heard more about what he thought about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. And he says time with me if I tell of Samuel and David and the prophets. Okay, that's, that's for the kings okay, in the exile. That's for weeks to come. But, but it is a, amazing here that even in the midst of this book that we have people who are weak in their faith, timid like Gideon, a womanizer like Samson. A foolish man like Jephthah. A wimp like Barak. And yet they have faith. Somehow, some way, God sees that small little faith and uses these people, blesses them to preserve His nation. And I, I just say, hopefully that comes across encouragement to you that yes, Israel sins and God saves. And God uses people who are... Of little faith, even to accomplish his purposes. I want to comfort all of our hearts this morning. Well, thank you for your patience. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know the story of the Bible and the story of the judges that Israel sins and you save. And uh, we thank you that though we have sinned, though we were dead in our transgressions and sin, but God made us alive together with Him. God, what a glorious thing it is that you have made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace we have been saved through faith. Oh God, that that faith may be small, but it is God-given and would plead that you would give us more. Help our unbelief, help our faith to grow large in you that we might live righteous lives, that you might delight to use us um, for your purposes. these are dark days for the people of Israel and I pray as we look back, look forward even to the kingdom, those are brighter days when you set a king upon your throne but he's only a picture of the greater king and may that encourage our, our hearts and stimulate them to worship you. We thank you for this day, this Lord's Day you've given to us. May we go in peace. May you bless us and encourage us in Jesus name. Amen. Great, you are dismissed. Have a have a great Lord's Day. I'm going to meet the children right up here.